0: we continue our consideration of God's wonderful willingness to forgive. On your page 5, we have a couple of thoughts here that increase our appreciation of God's willingness to forgive. We saw these many beautiful words used in describing God and His attitude of forgiveness. No, it would have helped God to forgive if he found some assets in our life. Like uh, we all have thought before we came to Christ that we had a lot of assets or things that we had done uh, to glorify God. Uh, if there was this mixed motivation that so many say, this would help God to forgive easier, wouldn't it? If he had something to attract him, we say, It would have been easier to deal with the bad part if he had a good part. But along comes the Scripture and indicates that there is no such thing as a good part in our former lives before we came to Christ. And the Apostle Paul summarizes this in the third chapter of Romans, does he not? Here we read in verse 10, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God, for God. All have turned, to, turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. And so this heightens our concept of God's mercy. He can't find assets like we were sure he could. And still he's willing to forgive, is he not? Now, the next uh, proposition is that it would help God to forgive if man was trying to be forgiven. If man would seek God, this would help God to forgive, wouldn't it? But along comes the scripture and indicates that no one is seeking for God. In other words, the innocent ought to be sought by the guilty. But instead of this, we have the innocent seeking the guilty and God overcoming the fact that although man has revolted against him, he is not seeking God. We uh, we might read that passage in Isaiah 64, where we have these same two thoughts advanced here. We have the expression in verse 6, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The things we sought were virtuous. When we analyze our motives of it, it changes the picture. Then we have in the next verse, and there is no one who calls on thy name, who rouses himself to take hold of thee. And so here we have a double problem, then, do we not? God finds no assets. When motives are analyzed, and yet he's willing to forgive, God finds no one who is seeking him. And he's pursuing us with his forgiveness. Here's God with his great forgiveness of heart pursuing us who don't want to be forgiven. We'd like to escape the consequences of our sin, oh yes. But we don't want to think of being reconciled to God in the pursuit of our selfishness. And yet God is pursuing us. So we evaluate, do we not, the beauty of God's love. And the problem was not that man is not able to repent. This didn't have to be solved. Because God declares man is able to repent. And so this develops such a beautiful summary that we've read. The beauty of God's willingness to forgive. And try to come to us and, and try to reach our hearts and our lives and bring us into his affection. And so we go on to the next consideration on your page 6. What are the problems then to be overcome by means of reconciliation? If the problem is not God's unwillingness to forgive, if God does not require strict, vindictive, calculated justice in the externing uh, reconciliation, Then what are the problems? And so it seems like there are four things that have to be solved. A great deal of time and a number of years have been put in uh, trying to perceive what were the problems. When I satisfied my mind that this other concept just couldn't be true, then I did not know what the sacred atonement had to accomplish. As we have said, we don't need to have these, all these reasons before us in salvation. All we need to do is to allow ourselves to think of what dear Jesus had to do for our reconciliation and to be broken down before the Savior's heart. We don't need to understand all these mysteries whatsoever. Aren't we glad of this? So what God is trying to do in pursuing us is to get us to be willing to listen to him and turn around. And so scripture means a complete turnaround, doesn't it? And we were facing away from God, the scripture indicates, pursuing our own self. You were a sheep going astray, Peter writes. 1 Peter 2.25, continually going astray. What happened? You turned around. When you turned around, then what were you doing? You were facing the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So God, the picture is God pursuing us in our selfish rebellion, wanting us to listen and turn around and to be reconciled to Him in thought, and understanding, and in mercy. And so, after a good deal of investigation and prayer and study further, we see some real things that have to be solved. Uh, we have in your summary there four words that we bring into the discussion. There is the governmental problem, first and foremost. The sin prevention problem, we say, in the free exercise of mercy. How is God going to forgive without the collapse of his government? Then there's the personal problem, we say. The God-ignorance problem on the part of mankind. God can't bring us to himself unless we learn to know his thoughts and his reactions. So something tremendous has to be brought to pass to reveal how God feels concerning sin and how deeply it has affected God. Because God's mercy, we might think it hasn't affected him very much. So this is a great problem that has to be solved. God and man have to know each other as we realize. Then there's the preparatory problem having to do with our pride. We have made ourselves number one in our lives, haven't we? God can't save us in this situation, of course. Why, we'd come into heaven and think we were important, wouldn't we? We'd kind of think heaven ought to stop when we come because we're so great. And so something has to happen to bring us to truth. And so here's the preparatory problem. They're trying to bring us down to our proper size. And then we have the transformative problem. The damage problem we've done with our personality. And we bring this into the atonement because the scripture indicates we have a part in our own transformation. We're not passive in the new birth, in other words. We share the activity with the Holy Spirit in the new birth. And so since we share the activity of the Holy Spirit, there has to be a means by which The Holy Spirit can take us and we go along with Him to a means that's going to transform us and bring us into the state where God can do what He wants in sweet and loving forgiveness. Notice the second sentence under item 4. The atonement of Christ was not made for God alone. This would be the idea of the satisfaction theory, would it not? God's vindictive justice must be satisfied, it is affirmed. Nor was it made for man alone. This would be the moral influence theory, wouldn't it? Of those who say all that has to happen is for man to be persuaded. But then we summarize it this way. But to answer the problems in restoring a ruptured God-man relationship in all that is involved. And we say God and man must be viewed together in an intimate relationship if we are to comprehend the problems of reconciliation. And then we come to a very, very important passage in this matter. And we take this passage as the key of our different problems that we, that we face. And that passage is, of course, Romans chapter 3. 24 to 26, Romans 3.23 concludes the discussion of the first three chapters, doesn't it? As far as guilt of sin is concerned, verse 23 makes the statement that all have sinned. This is simply a declaration of what has happened and are continually coming short of the glory of God. And then we have the adventure of salvation, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And here is the great statement of the matter. This was to demonstrate His righteousness Because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. We think this last statement has to do with the forgiveness of sins in Old Testament times. When the problems of salvation were not solved fully. Remember in Hebrews you have this summary, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So there's not a full solution in Old Testament times of the problems of reconciliation. So God went ahead, as it were, on the basis of what was going to be done and gave them the type of the animal sacrifice. And so, as it were, He passes by the solution of the full problem in Old Testament times, looking forward to the fulfillment in the sacred advent and atonement of Jesus. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. And here's the great majestic statement. That he might be just. Just to all his responsibilities. So justification has to do with God. Justifying God in the exercise of mercy. Whereby God cannot be demonstrated to have compromised in his responsibility toward his creatures. He is fulfilling his obligations as a moral governor. He must have the stability of his government established. He must make possible a reconciliation that's meaningful. And so here we have that beautiful statement that he might be just and the justifier. Now the word justifier is equivalent to the matter of forgiveness, as you notice in various places. Uh, Jesus used them, too, as equivalent and And uh, Paul uses them as equivalent and all involving the whole matter of how God uh, brings us into a state of salvation of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the great commitment that we must have as individuals to make effective God's great plan of salvation. We have this positive statement, do we not then? The demonstration Before the whole moral universe. It couldn't be anything secret. It had to be something that would put before the whole mass of moral beings. God's solution of the problem. To fulfill His obligations toward His creatures. That He might be just and the justifier. That He might forgive us freely like He wants to. Like He's told us in verse 24. Justified or forgiven freely as a gift. Now we want to take the the statement God might be just and apply it to each one of the four propositions that we see. It must be dealt with if God's going to do what he wants to do. So we say God must be just to his moral government. This is God's first great problem, isn't it? And if he can't do this, he can't forgive like he wants to. And we just have a few review thoughts of Moral government then coming before us? So we say there has to be just as effective a deterrent to sin in the forgiveness that God wants to declare as the enforcement of the pronounced penalties would have been. In other words, God cannot compromise with the moral regulations of moral beings. If he can't find a substituted measure, then he can't forgive like he wants to do. We have a few principles then of moral government again, like we've had on two occasions before. And we see that man was designed and created to have choice, to have the options of moral government. And we think of that majestic summary by Moses back in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. He said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Here then is the basis of God's regulation. Jesus talked about His great desire to enter into all the hearts He can. There had to be a hearing His voice, as we've already talked about, Revelation 3.20, and an opening the door. And I will come in. And so this is the basis of God's regulation, is it not? So we say the, infa- the incentive or the enforcement of the moral government, of course, are consequences without any favoritism. We haven't read Romans 2, 6 to 11 as yet. Here we have the Apostles' great summary of the two options of choice. We have the goodness of God leading to repentance, as in verse 4. Then we have the twofold attitude that mankind has. Uh, is there going to be a stubbornness and an unrepentance of heart? If so, there will have to be the consequence of judgment, Palm writes. Verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Then the other option, those who are persevering in doing good, Seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So we have the two options here described before us. And it is our choice that determines the consequences. Then that majestic statement in verse 11, there is no partiality with God. God does not choose one above another for no reason. And so here is the uh, the consequence declared of moral government. Now, of course, here's the great problem God faces. If He's going to forgive, He removes the consequences. Oh, my friend, do we appreciate the forgiveness of God? God wants to give us a new sheet to work with. In His beautiful love, we see so many, many dark passages of the consequences of sin and how God is going to establish moral justice. We just read in Romans who will render to every man according to his deeds. And now in forgiveness, God wants to remove this and treat us as though we'd never sinned. So he's removing consequences, isn't he? Right away we see that God can't do this. Unless he can find some effective measure that will be just as moving and just as influential in the prevention of sin as the inerrant application of the consequences would be. This becomes a very obvious thing, does it not? And of course is the great problem in forgiveness. We have a little sketch here which you may have seen. Here we have our wrong desires or tempers building up in some area of pursuit of some sort. What is it that slows down these tempers as they build up? There is the flash of consequences. And this cools down the temper and the pursuit of some kind of a Selfish activity. The flash of consequences. Now God proposes to remove the consequences in some who are willing to be reconciled. And the rest of people will say this. Since God is overmitting some consequences, it is quite probable that He's not going to fulfill all He says. And so God removes the consequence in some All the mass of people who aren't willing to submit to God will think that God is now compromising, is not going to do what He said. And so the whole government collapses. So we can see right away, if God is going to do this, He has to erect something that will have just as effective dynamic to slow down the wrong choices of moral beings as the consequences pronounced would have had. And so the sacred life and suffering of the Lord Jesus done before the whole mass of humanity and published throughout the known world and succeeding generations would testify as to God's seriousness of the matter of sin and would indeed perform the same function far greater than even the inerrant pronouncement of the consequences would be. And you notice we have a great, wonderful illustration of this in the Bible. Let us turn to Daniel chapter 6 here. And here's a great biblical example of moral government. We know the story of dear Daniel. How precious to see his devotion to God. He's going to be true no matter what. And God had such intimacy with him and gave him so many secrets. At the end of chapter 5, we have Darius, the Mede, coming into the kingdom. He has established his order of rule. There are going to be three presidents, and there are going to be 120 princes under the three presidents. Daniel has been given favor, and he's the chief of the presidents. And now the other two, of course, want to get rid of him. And and it is interesting what they have to say. Verse 5 of chapter 6. We shan't find any, go- any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. A wonderful testimony, wasn't it? And so they find the king in a state of pride, and they make a proposition: Would it be nice a king if, if uh, you write a law that for 30 days nobody's supposed to ask anything of anybody except you, and make the consequences real, so you'll get the result. Make the consequence of the den of lions to anyone who asks anything of anybody except you. And the king obviously forgot about Daniel because later on when he reminded, reminded Daniel, he afflicts himself over the matter. And so, of course, dear Daniel, doesn't matter with him how long he stays in this world. He has a relationship with God. He opens his window, he's in captivity, opens his window toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he gets down and prays and gives thanks to God. And, of course, they have designed this whole thing, and they're there to hear him. Then they report back to the king, didn't you make a law here that no one's supposed to ask anything of anyone except you for 30 days? And then you can see the countenance of the king going to have a shock because then they remind this Daniel, he's not obeying you. He's praying to his God no matter what you have ruled and no matter what kind of consequences you have designed. And now we see a distress, do we not? Verse 14, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. What is he trying to do? He's trying to find a way of substituting something for the punishment that has been pronounced. He knows far more than we do in our so-called elevated society. He knows that if he avoids the consequences, he eliminates moral government. We don't know that today. We have bogged ourselves down, as we said, in human, in human leadership over all the speculations and all the evolution and all we've denied moral government as a society. And here we are, thinking we can play with consequences and eliminate them, all the complications, all the technicalities that are taking place in the trials we have. It's utterly ridiculous when you think of the, the complications and the involvements that can be brought into such situations. And so Darius finds no substitute. He knows that if he makes exception in Daniel's case, the whole government collapses. Because the purpose of consequences is to establish and reinforce rules and laws that are supposed to be for society's good. And so Daniel had to be cast into the den of lions. And then he had this confidence, did he not? Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. My, praise God, if we be something like dear Daniel, living for the Lord no matter what happened. And so here's the great night going on. Dear Daniel is down here worshiping God, having a new experience. He looks into these great creatures here, and he is he securely in the Lord's love like he'd never been before. And he is enthusiastic in his experience, is he not, as the next morning tells us. Here we have the king pacing the floor. No feasting, no fancy things tonight. No music. He's in desperation here. Here's the problem moral government then so vividly put before us. And then the morning we have a twofold attitude. We have a lamentation at the top. We have a restfulness at the bottom. And so Daniel's enthusiasm, oh my God, he sent his angel. He shut the lion's mouth. I had a wonderful time down here with the Lord. And so it is with God helping us to have different experiences, is it not? But we see the principle illustrated then, do we not, of the governmental problem in mind how we need to rethink our situation. We mentioned on your page 6, your item 1 in parentheses, we say there in the paragraph underneath, the primary purpose of punishment is not to reform the offender, but the protection of society in the prevention of crime. We have reversed this, and now our judicial procedure thinks mainly of reforming the offender, and we read the most astonishing statements from a highly educated judiciary forgetting completely the millions of people who are living in fear when all their technicalities releases the criminals in all kinds of little tiny technicalities. And so they say that capital punishment is cruel and unjust when this is ministered in, in, in a kind of a slumbering away situation. It's shocking. You hear nothing as to how cruel and unjust it is to turn criminals out upon society so they wouldn't dare go out at night and live in fear a good part of the day. Cruel and unjust to society is quite forgotten in all their involvement in their psychological uh, mysteries that they're trying to trace down. So we see that whenever you let a criminal out, you you reduce the guarantee of, of uh, society, do you not? Now, God can't have these compromises. If he can't solve this situation, he can't do what he wants to do, can he? And so we see this great governmental problem that God faces here. And so we bring the conclusion there if free pardon is to be extended to penitent sinners, we say, some great measure must be substituted for the punishment of sinners that will uphold the government of God at least equally as well as the pronounced consequences would have done. And this becomes the great problem that has been recognized. We have quoted some historical statements on this matter way back there in the 300s. And many times in the development of the thinking on the atonement, this great concept of God as a moral governor. And you can see how common the idea of moral government has been in the history of the church. And strangely enough, it seems to have been uh, pretty dimly lost in our own century and needs a great recovery, to be sure. Now, consequences do work, do they not? And we have some different illustrations of this. And if if, uh, these are compromised, then indeed society will fall apart. For example, here in Pakistan, uh, just uh, within the last year, they voted uh, to bring into effect the common Muslim rule that the, the hands of a thief are to be cut off. When they work for our own possession, we should be entitled to it. This looks very cruel, does it not? But there doesn't have to be many performances of this before society is protected. And so I read that if you dropped your purse in Mecca, for example, nobody picks it up. May stay there all day. Someone might accuse you of stealing it. And so on. It may look like a very rigid thing for Turkey to have a death penalty for selling dope or using it. You may remember three Americans thought they would make a lot of money in Turkey about six or eight years ago, were found and get, got the death penalty. It took a top diplomatic intervention to get the Congress to vote a special consideration. So it was juiced down to life then. That's the way it stayed for a few years. Then diplomacy went to work again and got the Congress to consider more leniency. And so it was reduced down to 12 years. And that's where it now stands. You say this is a rigid thing. Well, if it keeps several million young people away from throwing their lives away, it looks like it's a benefit to society, does it not? The same thing exists in Brazil. Brazil. And so certain countries know the principles of moral government, which we, as so-called highly developed nations, have rather complicated and lost the principles of government. And so God cannot compromise. I read about some voyagers going up the Amazon, way in the back country. They came into a group of natives there, and studied them, they saw some men with huge scars running right over their head and onto their face. And they say, what are these scars for? Oh, these are men that try to break up marriages. And so they wouldn't have a million divorces like we do in America last year. And so consequences do work. They don't know anything about the Bible. They realize the family circle has values. And so we need to see the principle of forgiveness. God can't forgive like he wants to unless he can guarantee that his responsibility of moral government shall not collapse. So the sacred advent and atonement of Jesus is to justify God. In the exercise of mercy. So no one will accuse God of deficiency in any sense. And so God has gone to all his difficulty uh, to solve things that he might pour out the bounty of his love and his mercy. Then uh, we see a second great proposition coming before us. God must be just to himself as a moral governor. Something has to happen to reveal how God feels about man's rebellion. Man uh, recognizes God is so great and, uh, he, and uh, things just don't happen. People get away with sin. Uh, you can form your own rules, your own morality, uh, do what you want to do, and nothing seems to happen. And people get the idea that this great God is not concerned about this matter, is not too unhappy about it. So something has to happen that shall reveal God to mankind and show how deeply sin has affected God. Now we see that salvation and reconciliation must be to know God by experience. This is what Jesus said, didn't he? In his high priestly prayer there, John seventeen 3, we've talked about. This is eternal life, he said. That they may be knowing thee, a present tense, and the verb to know by experience. So Jesus said salvation is to be knowing God by experience. And to be happy in God, of course. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That majestic statement in Second Peter 1, 1-4. Partakers of the divine nature. My, what a wonderful statement. God wants to give us experiences of his living presence, doesn't he? My, what a statement. Verse 4. For by these the promises he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Now what do you have to do to become a partaker of the divine nature? The rest of this verse says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by selfishness and lust. And the word escape is a vigorous fleeing, fleeing from our own selfishness that we were bogged down in. And so if God and man are going to experience each other, God has to find a way to reveal how deeply sin has affected his happiness. And... uh, God knows man, of course. He doesn't need any increase in his knowledge. Uh, We read about Jesus in John 2.25. He knew it was in man. He didn't need anyone to tell what's going on in the mind. He knew it was in man. Then we read uh, Hebrews 4.13, him with whom we have to do, and how God knows exactly what's going on in our personality. So God needs no new knowledge. But think of man. We've read Isaiah 30 and verse 11 where they said, Leave us alone. Don't bother us, God. Send us, don't send us any prophets. We don't want to be bothered. We want prophets who will speak nice things. And can you imagine saying this to God? Verse 11. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Why would they ever say this? Because they didn't know the character of God. God doesn't want to rob anybody. He wants to love us. He wants to give us the unending exploration of his being. Does he not? And so something has to happen if a man is going to know God. And we distorted our minds so much. Romans chapter one twenty-eight again, just that they did not be fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And so there hasn't been any mind that isn't totally unbalanced concerning the concepts of God. And if there's going to be a reconciliation, God has to find some way to reveal himself in total so that man may know what sin has done to God and how God feels about it, and get the total reaction of God's responses. And so we see this great necessity, do we not? Man has to learn some dreadful things. Man has to learn the intense hatred of God over man's revolt. When God God conceives of his love and all he wants to do for man, and and he thinks that man is defying him, little tiny man defying the great God, with all these false concepts and these completely distorted, depraved state of mind. There can't be any reconciliation if God can't do something great and tremendous to show His personality, show how He feels. Don't you think this is pretty much lacking in presentation today? We have so many professing Christians who don't fear to go on in their sin. It's unthinkable. I guess they've never learned of the manifestations of Jesus, have they? Something has to be done, therefore, to give us a total picture of God's sweet, moving love and his inner reactions and his righteousness and his evaluation of the whole matter. We have to come to the perspective, do we not? And Paul talks about the great achievement of our Christian life. Very simply, in one sentence here, Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the last verse there says we have the mind of Christ. A present tense. We are having the mind of Christ. This is what God needs to do uh, to bring our minds into agreement with His. And so some great measure surely has to happen if God is going to do this, does it not? Uh, This is no little easy problem to be sure. God has to make a total manifestation, doesn't he? Then just think of ourselves as we're clear out of hand, entirely distorted in our concept of our own importance. And we built and we built our own little castles, haven't we, of self-centeredness. And how can God ever reconcile us to himself unless he can find a way to bring us to our proper intelligence, our proper evaluation of our position, to see our dimensions as we really are in the perspective of God. So we see that man, God must be just then to man's hypocrisy. He must have some way to destroy all pride. Pride is a false evaluation. And bring man to recognize the truth of his moral relations and the profound guilt of his sin as deserving of eternal punishment. Oh my, isn't it unthinkable as we open our minds and read to the complete distortion of humanity on their own importance? How can God ever reconcile anyone unless we come down to our dimensions? You remember we had that paragraph in the introduction to the long section on the message. We had the New Testament description of all of us before we came to Christ. And so we say that man has completely lost all true perspective of his life in its eternal relation to God and his fellow man. We had that dark scripture, man loves darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil. Loves darkness, doesn't want to be discovered. Now, my friends, somewhere, every moral being has to be discovered. God has made arrangements, as we're going to see, to discover us in this life, discover us to ourselves in this life. Unless he can find a way to bring us down where we belong, he can't bless us like he wants to. And when we come to section 10, we're going to see that the force of humiliation determines the quality of blessing God can give us. And God wants to bless us with great abundance, but He can only bless us in proportion as we humble ourselves. If God blessed us when we were proud, He would be be sinful. he He would be contributing to our greater pride. And God is certainly not going to do this. So we see a great magnitude, do we not? The problem then of God bringing us to the point of intelligence. We had this little sketch before us. And all of us have made ourselves completely important. So we can't see anything of truth. Here's our eye point. And before our eye, from morning to night has been me education assumes me economics assumes me the whole world assumes me first it's the law of the world everyone assumes assumes and everybody's living for themselves and here's the thing we need to do if we're going to testify for jesus we need to do something for souls so they see that we're not doing this to receive something They were trying to show them love, not to get, but to give like Jesus did. How can we ever be happy? The Spirit of God kindled this little sketch, and I seem to see right away the great psychological problems. Oh, my, a great struggle. Yes, you come to a psychologist. He'll start his clock in $50 an hour to tell you a few things. Here we have Christians rushing to the psychologist to get their problems solved. And the problems will never be solved as long as we are nearsighted by choice. As long as we look at ourselves and my tensions, i got such tensions now, help me solve my tensions. The tensions resolve themselves into self-importance. And we can't see others because of ourselves. We, of course, can't see God either. Now, God can't save anyone in this condition, that's for sure. And so something great has to happen, doesn't it? to it? To show us what is real. So the me has to come down to proper size. Then others increase so we can see past ourselves. Then God has to become, in reality, something of his own dimensions, mustn't he? And so we say that something has to happen to change our evaluation of ourselves. If God is going to do what he wants to do, he can only do this in truth. Remember 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And certainly the first truth is the truth of God's greatness in our own smallness, isn't it? So we have a number of passages of this effect. You have Isaiah 66, 2. The last part of this verse tells us about an inerrant requirement of God if He's going to bless us. God says, To this man will I look to him that is poor, to him that is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So something has to happen, doesn't it, uh, to bring us to the point where God can bless us. Uh, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 tell us something about God's resistance of falsehood. And He's not in any conceivable way ever going to uh, counteract and put up with this. We have in verse 5, God is opposed to the proud. He sets Himself up against the proud but gives grace to the humble. He can't do anything else, can he? And so there has to be something then to humble us and bring us down. We have Paul talking very strongly, do we not, in Ephesians 5.14. For this reason it says, the scripture, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall shine to you. Awake from our false evaluation of ourselves. Our own kinds of own importance. And this becomes an immense problem that God faces. And it's such a beautiful thing, isn't it, to think of God's love? And we'll mention this further in the week. When God gets us down where we belong, he lifts us up where we don't belong. He tells us when we get down where we have the austere concept of the greatness of God, He wants to lift us up into a family relationship and give us the privilege of calling Him Father, which is the family name. You can't hardly pronounce it. It is the family name of intimacy that God says, I I don't want you down where you belong. I want you in a favored position. But I can't give you this favored position unless you get down where you belong first. And so we see an immense problem, do we not, with God if He's going to bring about the reconciliation He wants. And let's always remember God's great loving desire to give, to bless without any end. When a beautiful picture comes to us from the heart of God, then we have the fourth proposition, which has only been added in my thinking about 25 years ago. And this uh, comes about because... We see that we're not passive in our transformation. Many theologians say we are passive. passive, God simply comes down and transforms us. But the Scripture indicates in many, many places, and we give you quite a summary of this later on, that we have a part in our own transformation. The transformation The Holy Spirit in transformation wants to rearrange us. But we've got to be willing to be rearranged we got to be willing to be transformed. And so the verbs indicate we have a part in our own transformation. And since we have a part in a transformation, there must be some kind of uh, development, some kind of means by which we can go along with the Holy Spirit to be exposed to some means that will result in our transformation. And so we say God must be just to man's moral freedom in providing a means to be involved with ourselves along with the Holy Spirit in purifying the innermost being of the repentant sinner and, secondly, in inducing him to live a new spiritual life through faith. We have the beautiful statements of Jesus, did we not? He talked to Nicodemus about being born from above. What a marvelous thought he had here. That's a great statement, isn't it? Born from above. Taking the greatest illustration in our physical existence, our birth, and using it with the idea that our spiritual entrance into relation with God is such a climax, such a tremendous thing, that it can be illustrated by our physical birth. We have what Paul said in Second Corinthians five seventeen: If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So God wants to transform us completely, doesn't He? Bring us into His sacred heart. And then we have that great summary we think of spiritual experience, which will be the key passage in your section ten. And here we have in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, the twofold thing that it appears God wants to do for us. We have the washing of regeneration, the removal of something, and the glorious renewing of the Holy Spirit, the entrance of life. And so here's the great moral change that we have a part in, as we have mentioned. We have in Ezekiel 18.31 a statement of our part in reconciliation. We have in verse 30 God's great invitation, repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you or may not become your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart any new spirit, for why would you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Make yourself a new heart. This, of course, means a new choice, a new supremacy. Instead of having a self supremacy, become intelligent. Make God supreme. Make yourself a new heart. Have a new revolutionary choice, of course. And so we have a part in our transformation. Then first to Peter 1, 22 and 23. It talks about our part in this transformation. In other words, we bring ourselves to the means that God must provide if He's going to achieve what He wants to do. And so here we read these precious words. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Notice our part in purification. For a sincere love of the brethren... Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. So we see we have a part in our transformation. We're not static. We're not passive. And if we're going to have a part in this matter, we have to have a means to come to. When we come to this section, we will try to illustrate it this way. Supposing when you open this door, you found everything in this room in disorder. Suppose well, you found all the chairs tipped over, all the furnishes, furnishing actually tipped over in a tremendous chaos and, and an absolute disturbance of the whole situation. Now, we can't come into this room and have a lecture and have fellowship with the gathering of the things of the Lord, can we? We don't need any new equipment, do we? We've got enough equipment in the room. To have our time of meditation together. But the equipment is totally distorted. And we have to go to work to put it in order. Before we can come in here and create a spirit of fellowship. This is what God wants to do as I see it. And we have a part in this putting in order. As you study in the section 10 you'll notice that we think we can take all these different scriptures... And give the negative and the positive idea. God wants to move in, doesn't he, with manifestations. But he can't do this. And think things are in order. And look at the chaos we've made of our lives. Look at our imagination, our habits of thought, our habits of will, our habits of temper. All these different things we've developed. God can't move in in this situation. He has to have some transformation, doesn't he? And so as it were, he has to come and put things in order with our agreement. And if if we're going to respond to the Holy Spirit's work, there has to be some means to do this, doesn't there? And so we see that some means has to be brought into existence which will enable God to do this great transformation along with our consent. And then not only this, but he wants to bring us into a new relationship, doesn't he? We talked about Titus 1.15, Under the pure, all things are pure. This is what God wants to do, isn't it? Come into our minds, our imaginations. Recreate a new scope of activity. Then He wants to help us in our daily life by no intimacy. He's not going to cause us to live for Him, is He not? Sometimes you hear people say, Oh God, take away this sin from me. God's not going to do that. He can't do that. The biblical prescription is put it away and look to Jesus. And Jesus wants to provide a new relationship to His atonement and His love, doesn't He? So we will feel the motivation of His heart and the motivation of His tender love. And so Paul gives us the confidence of such a passage as Romans 5, 9, and 10 when we would be discouraged. And how the Lord Jesus is going to help us in every situation here. And he says uh, Christ has come because of God's great love and he says much more than... Verse 9, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath, from wrath of God through Him. For if while we were sinners, we are enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So something must happen to bring a new relationship of the love of God in His manifestation to us. So it is to be Christ in us the hope of glory, isn't it? In Colossians 1 1.27 Now we mention some characteristics that have to be true of such a great adventure. Here is God conceiving his problems, conceiving the situation he has to solve and trying to evaluate the kind of solution that will have to be brought into existence if he's going to solve these great problems. And so we can see some things that have to be true about this, can't we? We first of all see it can't be something lovely. You cannot solve an unlovely problem by a lovely substituted measure. And since sin is such a violation of God's heart, such a revolt against his heart, whatever God's going to do to solve it has to be of a similar nature. has to be something unlovely, something terrifying, something humiliating, something of being a catastrophe of our own estimation of ourselves. Something very, very unlovely then, filled with great awe we say. And this series of events must be something of great dignity, mustn't it? We can certainly say this. It is solving the problems of God and man in relationship, isn't it? Think of the dignity of God. There can't be a little thing to solve this, can there? And God is trying to solve this problem in our human consciousness, isn't he? So whatever he's going to do can't be something out of the reach of our experience. It must be something within our consciousness and understanding. And then we're so grateful for the universal love of God that he has no preferences. He says so seven times in the New Testament with some very strong words plus all the other manifestations. And so there's no partiality with God. So whatever God's going to do, he's going to do for everyone, not select some favorites and, and treat them in a special way. And then God has to have something simple so the simplest moral being can avail himself or herself, of the solution of this great problem. Oh, friends, I commend these thoughts to you. Thank God for what this picture has done for me. And if you see these thoughts to be verified in the Scripture, let us go out with great energy and pathos and love to try to get people To sit down and reason with us. Describe to them the nature of God, the great desire of God to bless. Describe the problems that God faces and how He has designed to solve them. And how sweet and how lovely are God's manifestations to us.